When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mind Love Premium, episode 93. Today's episode is all about how debate teaches us to listen and be heard. Two crises in our public conversation. One is the really visible crisis, which is our arguments suck often, you know, and they're loud and they're divisive and they're painful. But the hidden crisis is the decision that many of us make in watching those spectacles, which is a silent resolution that it's just not worth it. So we gravitate towards people we agree with. And it's in those echo chambers, as you say, that misinformation proliferates, where without challenge, our views tend toward the extreme. Um, But I think it's also a kind of a lonely life when you shy away from the vulnerability that's required to engage in a real disagreement and the courage that it takes to submit your ideas up for a kind of a review and to hear an alternative. It's a new day, a new episode, and a new opportunity to subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening for the first time, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you always know about new episodes. Plus, it makes you one of my favorite people. Because the more subscribers I have, the more I attract amazing guests to help better serve you. So don't forget to subscribe. Do you shy away from arguments because they're just not worth it? Or do you run toward them, get nowhere, and then feel like crap wishing you hadn't? I do both. (laughs) Totally depends on my mood. But I will say, these last two years have taught me a lot about what not to do. We've gotten to a point where it feels like most arguments worth having aren't worth it. And what kind of oxymoron is that? If it's an argument worth having, shouldn't it definitely be worth it? But what I've found is that so many topics have so much emotion behind them, or dare I say programming, that both sides become blindsided by their talking points and stop being able to see outside of them. There's not just downsides to this. There's real dangers, like families being disconnected in a way that's unrepairable, mob mentalities and tribalism, echo chambers that lead to all of us having more extreme views. I think that that last one is the most ominous of all. Because without healthy debate, our opinions and beliefs go unchecked. I've flopped sides on a ton of different things. And no, not because I'm indecisive or easily swayed, but because I try to remain open-minded and actually listen to counterpoints. And sometimes a good, well-rounded argument can open me up to new beliefs. It's actually something I'm proud of. But rarely does that happen in a heated argument. Both sides get tunnel vision. It stops being about two people having a discussion and becomes two people shooting off talking points until they slay their opponent. No one budges, and both people leave kind of hating the other person. Sounds healthy, right? So how do we get to a place where we respectfully converse? A place where we can come together and shave off the extremities in both of our views and meet somewhere in the middle. Even if that middle ground is just accepting that the other person is different. Well, that's what we're talking about today. And our guest is Boso. He's a two-time world champion debater and a former coach of the Australian National Debating Team and the Harvard College Debating Union. He is one of the most recognized figures in the global debate community, and now the author of Good Arguments. So three key things we will learn are how we screw ourselves in free-flowing arguments, how to break through deadlocked conversations, and how to bring in empathy in times of disagreement. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. 
That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Bo So to the show. Thanks so much, Melissa. I'm really pleased to be here. So what inspired you to find the wisdom in debate or argument? I wasn't interested in debate (laughs) in the beginning. (laughs) And in fact, I feared it. I moved when I was a kid from South Korea to Australia when I was eight, and I didn't speak English. You know, if adjusting to real-life conversation was hard, adjusting to arguments was really hard because, you know, you're feeling marginal as it is, you're feeling like you're barely welcome in a place, your differences feel very visible to you. And the idea that you would want to participate in a disagreement and to try and fight or argue with the people around you sounded kind of crazy. So actually, I decided not to do that. But in the fifth grade, my elementary school teacher made me a promise, which is that in debate, when one person speaks, no one else does. And for someone who was used to being spoken over and interrupted and spun out of conversation, that sounded irresistible, really. So that's where it started for me. And I think in terms of what it means for the rest of us, the fact that we're different from other people is just our reality, but that we must coexist is also our reality. And I think debating gives us a set of tools to be able to do that better so that we're able to express ourselves, to be heard, and to work out the differences that we have with other people. But I think for me, it starts with, as it did for me, it gives you a space to be heard. I love that. It's such a timely topic because everyone can feel how divided we are. Certain topics are just so heated. And so you can almost see an evolution of people really engaging in that debate. And there, there's always going to be those people, but so many over the last two years have stepped back because it's they don't feel like they're making any progress. They don't feel good at the end of it. They don't change each other's minds. So it's like, what's even the point? And so then we're all sitting here with our own ideas, not talking to each other about them. And yeah. so we're just in our echo chamber even more and more and more to where we cannot, not, I don't think one person can really say for sure if their beliefs right now are completely normal or like valid or whatever, yes. because we have been just in these echo chambers so much. And, and we're just and, on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We're like on a Facebook comment thread and you're like, oh my gosh, like, wait why till do you the hate avatars me? Come, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh my gosh. Yeah. In real life or sort of real life where we think real life is behind these big goggles or whatever. Gosh. Gosh. I mean, I share that view completely, Melissa. And, you know, I I sometimes talk about it as two crises in our public conversation. One is the really visible crisis, which is our arguments suck often, you know, and they're loud and they're divisive and, and they're painful. But the hidden crisis, which I think is the one you're referring to, is the decision that many of us make in watching those spectacles, which is a silent resolution that it's just not worth it. You know, and so we gravitate towards people we agree with. Um, And it's in those echo chambers, as you say, that misinformation proliferates, where without challenge, the most our views tend toward the extreme. But I think it's also a kind of a lonely life, um, the life that you lead when you shy away from the vulnerability that's required to engage in a real disagreement and the courage that it takes to submit your ideas up for a kind of a review and to hear an alternative. And I think maybe, you know, when I think back to the kid that I was, when I decided to shy away from disagreements, and it's that experience that makes me think, 
it's a kind of a crisis when when many people make that decision. Among all the other things, one of the things that I felt was a loneliness to that life, and I think we can do better than that. Yeah, I feel like we need to be able to come to the middle and and kind of shave off some of the extremities of, yeah. of each side's belief beliefs because I mean both sides if you spend enough time in it you're like that's kind of crazy and then you spend more time in it and you're like well I can see why they think that like there's plenty of yeah. evidence on both sides but I think one of the biggest things is that our emotions start to rise and then we're not thinking in a logical brain anymore and we're just heated and emotional and one of the points that you make is that half the time we don't even actually know what we're arguing about and that's one of the things that debate Saul or the structure of debate solves. Tell us more about that. So one of the big lessons of debate is that every disagreement needs to start with some amount of agreement. And that is, first of all, agreement about what we're actually arguing about. And this especially comes through, you know, in intimate relationships, relationships with family, where there's a million things you could disagree about at any given time. Right. If you even if you just mentally tour your house right now, you could probably argue about the dishes in the kitchen and the socks in the bedroom and then the bathroom that hasn't been cleaned and so on and so on. And so it's not productive when you're trying to have all those discussions in one go. Right. And we've all been in these situations where it was a discussion about who's taking the dog out for a walk. But then all of a sudden it becomes and then you know what your mother-in-law or father-in-law did to me the other day, or it's about the way you looked at me funny last Saturday, and all of a sudden it spirals out of control. So debate starts with naming what the debate is about, what the discussion is about, and saying there may be any number of discussions we have to have in the future, but we're going to kind of start with this conversation, and we're going to sort this out before we talk about something else. And so if we take a real-life example with that, I'm thinking of the times I've snapped at my husband or something like that, where he might think it's something small. Like maybe he said he'll do the dishes and which I don't know why I'm bringing this example up because he does the dishes more than I do, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> so he'll, he'll like say he's going to do the dishes, doesn't. And then in my mind, the reason I get emotional isn't because of that one thing. It's like, my mind starts to collect any other time that I've yeah, even definitely. sort of felt this way to where then I'm like, well, you know, in 2015, he did this and suddenly I'm, <laughs> I'm yeah, like definitely. collecting these things. And it's not even fair because sometimes it might seem like all of these things happen all the time, but it yes. might even be like once every six months. But for some reason, that's how I'm reacting. So how would you recommend in a case like that? Because I know it happens so often that you have the discussion to like, well, we need to drill this down to one thing because yeah. the moment that you tell me, an angry wife, like <laughs> we're only arguing about this. I'm like, no, because I'm mad about all these other things now. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think it starts as a conversation, right? So you say you react about the dishes and then I might respond, wait, is this really about the dishes or are we talking about all the other times where I've done something similar or where you felt this way. And you might respond, actually, it probably isn't just about the dishes. It is all about all those other times. And that's a really helpful little small bit of agreement, isn't it? Because then you don't get into this mysterious situation where why is this person overreacting to the dishes? Because it's not really about the dishes. So I think there is this, you know, in some forms of sport, like especially contact sport, there's a moment where you fist bump, or there's a little bit of contact that happens before the actual sport unfolds. I think it's a bit like that. Have we come to some common understanding here before we are launching into something that could otherwise be this wild, uncontrollable fire? That makes so much sense because it's not saying that you can't bring those things in. If that's the thing that you have to get to the bottom of, that's the thing you have to get to the bottom of. And also what having to come to this agreement first does is it helps both sides get clarity. Because on one hand, my husband might not know that I'm bringing in all of these past experiences to this argument. On the other hand, I might not even know that. Like I feel emotional and I'm like, why? And recently my husband and I have both been doing the seven layers deep thing, whether it's okay. goals or whatever, just asking why, why <laughs> yeah. is that important? Now, why is that important? Yeah. And so I was thinking about that in the context of 
figuring out what that topic it is. It's like, well, why are you so upset about that di- those dishes? What what else is coming up? Why are you attaching this to it? What do these things have in common? And so suddenly, I'm I go from just reacting emotionally to being really clear as as to why I'm upset, able to look at it through that lens. I might still be upset about it, but at least I know how to resolve it because I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I think one of the things that my background in debate uh, has made me very sensitive to, and one of the things that I'm trying to accomplish with the book is say you want to keep an eye on what you're saying within the conversation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. (laughs) And it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mindlove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash mindlove. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. My background in debate has made me very sensitive to, and one of the things that I'm trying to accomplish with the book is say, you want to keep an eye on what you're saying within the conversation, but you also want to keep the other eye on how that conversation is going, you know? And so looking at the quality of the conversation in addition to what you're saying within it. And one of the important points that I think you're making is even in the middle of a discussion, we sometimes come to a better understanding of what's making us upset and what the disagreement is. And the ability at that point to just put pause, to hit the pause button for a second and say, wait, are we still arguing about the dishes or has this discussion changed now, right? Or actually, I think I've gotten a better sense of what it is that I want to talk about. To be able to reset in that way rather than always pretend like, We've known from the beginning what we wanted to say and where we were coming from. I think that is a really helpful thing. It it takes a little bit of a loss of ego, maybe, but really an understanding that all of us are imperfect conversationalists. And so the best thing that we can do is to manage our conversations, to improve our conversations, 
but it's not something we're ever going to get completely right. Sometimes I feel like if I am in a certain mood, the mood where I get tunnel vision in an, in a debate, yeah. you know, where all of a sudden I'm like, oh, and then I'm just trying to make a point. I'm trying to nail it in. There have been times where all of a sudden I'm saying things that I don't even necessarily believe because I feel like it's going to make my point. It's like it's gone from solving my problem to now it's just how can I win this side? How can I make this point? And so what do you think that people get wrong when they try to make a point or what is what has debate taught you about the whole purpose behind your argument. Well, well, that's a really that's a really profound thought. I do think there is just some kind of animal instinct that sometimes just kicks in, you know, and you and you I think a lot of us we, we hate losing, right? And you just reach for anything that'll give you a little bit of an edge, right? I think the thing there to return to kind of what we were talking about with the topic is not only what is it that we're arguing about, but what is it that I'm arguing for? I think that can be really important. So when you're in that mode of just being argumentative, it can be very easy just to tear down everything the other side is saying. But when they turn around and say to you, so if not this, then what? What are you What are you standing for, right? So if the other person is throwing out all these ideas for places to go on holidays and you hate all of them and here are the five reasons why Hawaii isn't it. Um, <laughs> and then they say, well, we have to go somewhere. Otherwise, we're just staying here. <laughs> um, you have to actually put forward something. So remembering what you're arguing for in addition to what you're arguing against, I think can hedge against some of that destructive impulse. So what if you're having a discussion, you still very much stand on your side and the other one, the other side keeps making these points that they think are those mic drop moments. <laughs> What's a healthy way to push back? I think the, the first thing is when you see an argument coming up again and again, you want to make sure you've actually responded to it. Right? And there may be an opportunity, as you said before, to try and get under the skin of the argument a little bit to ask, well, why do you think that's true, right? Or why is that so important to you? The truth of an argument and the importance of the argument tend to be the two things that are kind of like hooks, right? That people rely on. And that's why they tend to think that argument works and why it's persuasive. So asking a little bit, well, where are you coming from with that? Because you clearly really passionately believe it. I think that can be a kind of an important step. The second more broad point is I share your view that so many of our conversations feel kind of stuck and, and we're both sort of entrenched in our side, just shouting about the same thing again and again. And one of the skills that you learn in debate is after you've prepared your case, just before you go on, kind of in the last five minutes, you take out a new sheet of paper and you try and come up with the best arguments for the other side. Or you look back on your own speech and you do it through the eyes of the opposition and you try and find the different fuels. And so in that situation you're describing where people feel very stuck in their ways, introducing those elements of play and role play and putting yourselves in the other person's shoes can often break the impasse. That makes a lot of sense. I think so often we forget to even listen to the other side. And the danger in that for me is constantly reminding myself, I'm not here to get my point across to everybody. Like my goal in life is to find the truth. I want to learn. And there have been many times that I've been in a debate and then somebody finally says something and I'm like, oh, I see why you think that. I've flopped sides on a number of different things once I actually understood what the other person believes, but we often don't even seek to see that because all we want to do, the main goal is to to just sort of cut somebody down. And in doing that, especially through the online medium, we completely lose empathy. And I know that one of the points in debate is that it's not just what you say, it's also how you say it. So how does that affect the conversation and what do we need to look out for? That seems very true to me. And one of the dangers of online debate is you're actually kind of indifferent to the person you're talking to. You're almost talking past them to address an audience that already kind of likes you <laughs> and wants to see you 
tear the other person down, essentially. And I don't think you have a hope of persuading the person right across from you if that's your aim. If you're using them as a means to get clout <laughs> or to get applause. And one of the things that I learned and one of the things that I see a lot in debate is a lot of the people who tend to do really well tend to be kind of marginal figures, you know, and not, not just for racial reasons or, or linguistic reasons, as it was in my case, or gender or any of the other ascriptive characteristics, but they're just kind of, they're sort of wall flies, you know, they're, they're sort of the odd ones out. And, and I sort of puzzled over that um, and why that might be. And I think one of the reasons is because those people learn to listen. They learn to read a room before they ever said anything. They learned to see where a conversation was at before they inserted themselves into it, um, often just to stop themselves from getting hurt. And so I think in order to persuade, in order for you to be heard, which is what I think a lot of us want, we also have to hear and listen to others because, and this is something we learn as kids, right? We have to take turns. And in order for me to get a turn, you have to get a turn. And going back to that idea that in order before you raise your voice, you have to train yourself to listen. I think that's a good habit to get into. I feel like that's a good habit to get into, even with our own thoughts. <laughs> like there's so yeah. many times where I can feel myself getting emotional and then I just take a deep breath and I listen to what's underneath it. And again, it kind of comes back to that finding clarity on the topic. I do that when I experience inner turmoil. A lot of times I'm yeah. like, oh, I'm anxious or I'm f suddenly snapping at somebody. And then I'm like, well, what's really going on underneath these layers? And so not only is it important to give each other that space, but just to give ourselves that space as well. I love that so much. And, you know, I was a newspaper reporter and, and obviously working as an author with this book. And the process of writing does that cooling for me often because you think you're possessed of a certain view and then the sentences just don't come out right. <laughs> <laughs> or there's just even a spell check error. <laughs> because it's not a sentence at all. And I think that that kind of filtering and cooling can be really useful. And one of the things that you have in debate is you become so persuaded of the truth of your ways, but what do you have to do before you ever say it? You have to write it down often in the form of a kind of a speech or an outline. And then you have to think about matching your words, matching your gesture, your voice, your stance, your facial expressions to what you're saying in order to best deliver it. So that idea of argument as a kind of a craft has all of those buffers in between so that it's not just head straight to mouth. There is this process that is, as you say, as much for yourself as it is for anyone else. That reminds me of a public speaking program I did a couple of years ago, one of the best in the world. It was such an amazing experience. And I learned so many details that I would I had never known before, where sometimes you see somebody on stage and you're like, how is it that I'm so captivated by this person? Yeah. And I'm looking back at the topic and I'm like, yeah, there were some jokes and and it was a good storyline that I'll remember and everything, but what really makes it stand out? And then you find out that people stage the entire speech. They stand at certain spots on the stage if they're talking about the future versus the past. And if they go back to talk about the past or to talk about a specific moment, they'll go back to that spot of the stage that they introduced that topic. So many things and the hand gestures. And so we don't often realize how important our body language is or our facial expressions or even our tone. But those are the things that I think, connect and evoke emotion. It's just like a good actor versus a bad actor in a movie. Mm, I love that. And, and just how powerful all of us are, right? Because, you know, that person, maybe they had PowerPoint, but there's no tech for this stuff. It's your voice. It's your face. It's your body. Um, and, you know, just the, the, the sound, the sound of it. And so I suspect most of us, myself included, um, only use a fraction of the power that we have to be able to move people in the way in which you're talking about, but also to connect, to cut through, to make our mark. And, um, and debate is obviously not the only toolkit that people need in order to do that. It only illuminates 
as I say, a fraction of what we're capable of, but we probably have to go fraction by fraction. To me, it just highlights the importance of mindfulness because that's what so much of this is. It's bringing awareness to all of these automatic processes, to our default movements, tones, speech. And so with all of these steps that we're talking about, about taking the pause to like get clear on what you are even talking mm-hmm. about, to notice your facial expressions and your tones, to bring intention towards those. Like if there's mm-hmm. a conversation or that you have often, maybe it's within your job and you're introducing, you're constantly meeting new families that you help or whatever, what does your face look like when you do that? Like yeah. what ways can you take some of the, this might sound extreme, but I could see it being helpful to even videotape yourself in certain times to see what that's like. And I have a few things on my mind lately. And one of them was, I was just listening to Tit Nhat Hanh saying how just a slight smile relaxes dozens of muscles in your face and and how much it can actually affect your mood when you just do something like that. And if you snap a picture of me when I'm not paying attention, I have the worst resting bitch face. (laughs) (laughs) I am, that is something that whenever I'm, I'm just like taking a walk or doing something or feeling stressed. It's one of my mindfulness moves. I'm like, can I, okay, what, what is, what do I look like right now when I'm feeling stressed? Can I just upturn my mouth a little, take a deep breath, drop my shoulders? Now, how do I feel? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny what we consider extreme. constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash MindLove. Just go to Indeed.com slash MindLove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash MindLove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, it's funny what we consider extreme, right? It can feel extreme to videotape yourself or to reach for a sound recorder, which every phone has now. But wait, it's not extreme to have the same ineffective arguments over and over again. That seems to me a kind of an insanity. Or to speak in exactly the manner in which you've been speaking when you know it it doesn't meet all of the, the, the goals that you have in mind. So... I completely agree with you on the mindfulness point. I, I was a, I did Taekwondo as a kid and yoga more recently. And one of the things that you learn in those traditions is what you do and how you do it are pretty different, right? And in Taekwondo, you don't get to spar until you've just done forms, which is like a ballet kind of choreography of defense moves and punches and so on and so on. And it's sort of similar in debate in that before, you know, we have this assumption that disagreement is something that everyone just knows how to do because we can do an approximation of it and we have to every day. But to be able to practice making arguments, responding, using rhetoric, all of these things, the how of it matters just as much as what it is that you're doing. And that requires 
an element of artistry. It requires practice and it requires mindfulness. My husband and I have been talking about this a lot because we have a one-year-old and all of a sudden I'm so hyper-conscious about what patterns, behaviors, wow. anything I have that I'm going to be passing down because I just want him to have the least challenges possible, you know? And yeah. and I think all of us unlearn things that we learn from our parents, no matter how amazing they are and what great job that they did. And one of that my husband's always says is his tone, like the joke with the family is his dad will be like, somebody will be like, why are you angry? And he's like, I'm not angry. <laughs> he like sounds angry. Why do you think I'm angry? As he says all angrily. <laughs> just like, it's just the way he speaks. And, and so my husband is trying to bring awareness to that. But uh, yeah, there's the energy that we carry is contagious. And so when we consider that, that it's not just about how you feel in the moment, even though that should be a pretty big motivator because that's really all we have is how we feel in this moment. And so not only do we have more control over the way that we feel, which is basically our entire experience of life, yes. but we have control over the what we spread, the way we make other people feel, and then the ripple effect that we have, that that has, where it's like, you know, you kind of tell off the person who cut you off on the <laughs> in the parking lot, then they go inside, they ram their card into somebody, and next thing you know, <laughs> everyone's crying. <Yeah. laughs> so, but I'm wondering though, we've talked a lot about how to engage in debate, have arguments in a more productive and a healthy way, but how do we know when it's just time to agree to disagree, to just like step back and be like, we're not going to get anywhere? And how do we do that without severing the relationship as much as yeah. possible? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I just love how you framed the question because my best friend just had a baby. And I think we're sort of used to talking down what the power of language is now, you know, and and you often hear people say, unironically, you can never change other people's mind um, through argument or through conversation. And the minute I saw my friend's kid, I knew that's not true, right? Everything I say to this, this child, every bit of energy, as you say, I, I transmit, it's having an effect. I like that you're taking seriously just the, the importance of how it is that we carry our conversations. And in the same way that how we feel is sort of a description of how we're living, how we talk to one another is a very important part of how we live together. And I do think this is a hard question about when to know, when to stop disagreeing, right? And I think if intelligence is a kind of a ability to disagree effectively, wisdom might lie in the decision to, or the ability to know when to start and when to stop. And in the book, I go through a kind of a checklist of saying we should engage in disagreements when the dispute at hand is real. It's not a kind of an imagined slight. When it feels important enough to have the disagreement, when it's specific enough, so to our point about arguing about everything, have we framed the debate in a way that's going to allow us to make progress? And do we feel that both sides are aligned in their objectives for wanting to be in the disagreement, as opposed to one person being there just to hurt the other person's feelings or something like that? And where those conditions are met, we might, or are not met, we might choose to not only not have the disagreement, but just defer it, right? To say, we'll come back to this another time. And so debate, I think of as one answer to a broader question, which is how do we disagree better? But it's not the only answer to that question. We can sometimes, and we have to negotiate, right? Or we have to just hear one another out without giving any response. And so there are lots of different tools that we probably have to have at hand and being able to debate and disagree forthrightly is one of them, but being able to put that aside and say, okay, we're going to defer this conversation and try and find any amount of common ground so we can just act on that for the moment, or we're going to do a give and take where I'm going to just lose the round to you on this one, but you're going to have to give me something down the line. Um, I think that kind of judgment becomes really important in our day-to-day -day lives. We talked about how it's so important the way that we say something. It mm. can even more so be than what we're saying. I'm wondering what the role of emotions is in debate. Because on one hand, those emotions can be powerful 
persuaders. Mm-hmm. It can really get to the heart of something. It can, like we talked about how all of your little facial expressions and tones and all that, emotion does that really well. But then emotion can also be a very slippery slope where mm-hmm. then you're too heated or you're too upset and then it's easy to write off what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So where's the balance for that? And mm-hmm. how do you make sure that you're kind of checking yourself along the way so that you don't teeter one way or the other? It's a wonderful question. And the way I think of it is emotion is an essential ingredient to good disagreement, but it's not the only ingredient. And it's a pretty potent ingredient too, like a spice. It can kind of overwhelm the whole thing unless you manage it and you balance it out with something else, right? And that something else is, I think, one of the challenges of emotion. And and one thing I didn't want to do with this book is say, being rational means you can't express your emotions at all. You know, there's that kind of argument sometimes where you're basically inviting people to be machine-like. And and I think that takes away the humanness um, of arguments. And that's, that's what an argument is. It's one of the most es- essentially human interactions we can have. So I don't want to put it aside, but I want to say you want to balance it. So one of the problems with emotions is it's usually a signal of something very important happening. Right, it points towards something, something that's giving you um, that strong reaction, and so making that something legible to the other side, so that they can understand it, they can do something with it. I think that happens often in two ways. One is by framing your position in terms of an actual argument. Right. So, what is it that you're asking me to do? That you're arguing for? Why do you believe it's true? Right? Is there an example that might support your case? Right? Why should I believe you? So an actual kind of a more detailed, reasoned argument that the other side can understand and do something with. And I think the second thing is, and this is the lesson that I had to learn in writing the book, is not being afraid to show your cards of how you got to the position where you're at. Right. So taking the other person on a kind of a journey of, I believe this. How is it that you come, you came to believe that? How is it that you came to feel that way? And so telling the story of what has produced this emotional response and walking people along that journey of how it is that you came to feel this way, I think that, again, requires a lot of vulnerability. It requires an admission that you don't have a perfect view of things, right? You came to your views through the path that you took and not through just some the truth was ordained um, from on high. And I think the combination of those two things, trying to, to put forward an argument and to explain how it is that you came to have that particular emotional response, in addition to the strong passions and candor that emotions bring, I think that can lead to a, m- a more rich conversation. That's what gets me. Usually if I'm, if it ends up being something where I'm really well, brought on the journey because I am actually brought on the journey. Because especially if I'm dealing with somebody who has an opinion and they haven't always had that opinion, there is a a journey there. It's so much different than, oh, you were raised that way, so this is the only thing that you can see. I don't really know how to have this conversation with you versus somebody who believed something different and then they're like, this was the thing that spurred my curiosity. This was the thing that woke me up. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, I can see how you got there at the very least. At the very yeah. least, it breeds empathy. And I've realized that I find I get most heated with people I know really well, like friends yeah. or family. And I think it's because there feel it feels like there's a stake in what I'm saying. Like I care about how these people are going to end up, you know? And so a lot of times that's part of my motivation is like, it reminds me of my mom's conversations with me of like, (laughs) she's religious and I'm not. And like believing, I feel bad because there's like a big part of her that believes that I'm going to hell. She doesn't want to think I'm going to hell. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so like for her, the emotion behind that is like saving my soul. And how can I compete with that? And then the other people I feel like I get really upset with are people I don't know at all. Those are like the people online. If I know you a little bit, for some reason I can just remain neutral. I can just listen to you talk. But then these people I don't know, and I think the reason that that gets heated is because, as you said earlier, you're not even really talking to anybody. You're talking to all the people who agree with you, which is essentially saying 
that you're just building up your own ego. And mm-hmm. so you have to win this argument because you're fighting for your ego. And it's like your mm-hmm. belief of the world. And if that shatters, then what else is going to shatter? And I think going back to your point about mindfulness, the great enemy of good disagreements in both these settings is carelessness, right? In our day-to-day lives, we can be careless because we have this idea that romantic love is them getting you when you haven't said a word. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's like a tagline for a romantic comedy, you know? And there's some sparkle in your eye that intimates all the things they might ever need to know. Wait, do you do Hallmark cards on the side? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Luckily, there's no um, debater's line of Valentine's <laughs> But, you know, that idea that they'll get you when you haven't even gone through the steps of organizing your thoughts and expressing yourself clearly, let alone putting it in the way that'll allow them to best understand it. It's a kind of a, a really absurd idea. And that coupled with when it comes to our family and our loved ones, we often assume, well, you must agree with me. <laughs> Because I've chosen to spend my life with you because we share things, right? And and we usually have similar values. That's the whole point of us being together. And I think that... You read the handbook I gave to my husband. Is that right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Had him sign exactly. on the line. <laughs> and when you put it like that, like how can it not lead to, to bad disagreements? And the same, and, and I love how you put it of working on both poles, the people you don't know, You're careless because in some ways they also feel kind of disposable, right? Especially online because they're going to leave your feed in 20 minutes. So you might as well do your worst. And in both instances, that kind of carelessness is not only bad for the particular interaction that's happening, but I think it emits a kind of a pollutant or something that just makes the atmosphere, whether it be in the home or on social media or in other settings, it just makes it a more toxic place to be and, and, and it tends to reduce the quality of the conversations overall. Um, so I think in both instances, it is trying to bring our mind back to the humanity of the person on the other side and not just general abstract humanity, but something very particular about them. It's this person you're talking to and being deliberate about how we go about having those conversations. Well, I love to give listeners something to focus on this week so that they can really ground in what we've learned today because there's so many good takeaways. So if they were just to really focus on one thing that would help them put what we've learned into practice, what would you have them focus on? I think I would have them think about a recurring disagreement in their life or a, a disagreement that is most painful in their life. And go through what I described before as the side switch exercises, which is turning to a new sheet of paper, imagining they were on the other side of what you're arguing about, or if they believed what their opponents or the person who's disagreeing with them, what they believe, and try and go through the exercise of arguing for that position. And that can just be a journal entry. It can be done on a napkin. But that process of putting oneself in the other person's shoes I don't think that is empathy because it's not, you're not really understanding what it is that person is believing in its particular details. But it is, I believe, opening the room for empathy because it forces you to think, maybe I've missed something or maybe my perspective isn't the only way in which we can get through this. And so I would encourage people to try it out um, and see if it gives just an inch of wriggle room because that might be the only thing that's required, actually, to unseat, to break some of these impasses. Yeah, just the word debate. I think for some people, they're just like, that doesn't sound fun, you know? Like, <laughs> who wants to go get in a debate? But there's so many little facets of it as far as, you know, psychology, learning about mm. other people, their behaviors, what they respond to, and yourself, your own triggers, the way you speak. It involves self-regulation. It involves mindfulness. It's just mostly it has 100% to do with our ability to c- to connect with one another because we're not here to just find everyone who has the exact same beliefs as us. We're not going to have any friends. That's our expectation. You're going to eventually find something that comes up. And 
yeah, you can live your life just shying away from all of those things, but there's going to be many instances where that's going to do you a major disservice, whether it's even just for your personal boundaries. And so to really learn how to have a healthy, productive disagreement uh, or debate is just the skills that you learn from that filter through in so many other things. So thank you for all of the research that you brought here and for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your book, where's the best place for them to connect? Thank you so much, Melissa. I really love the conversation. And for listeners, the book is called Good Arguments. It's just been released with Penguin Press in the US and uh, different publishers in the UK, William Collins and Scribner in Australia, um, and translations are on the way. And my website is helloboso, hello, B-O-S-E-O.com. And I'd love to hear from them. All the links for this episode are at mindlove.com slash x93. Your challenge for this week is to check your arguments. Can you soften the energy around them? Can you approach them with curiosity and open-mindedness? Even if you know absolutely 100% that you are firm in your opinion, can you hold the intention that you're there to learn about the other person? to discover what motivates their beliefs, to maybe understand a part of the spectrum of humanity that you haven't really spent time in before. I actually just did this the other day. Something big came up in the news that was causing division with everybody, and she posted about it, standing up for her side. And I responded and I said, I'm not sure I agree with that, but can we talk it out? It was something that I could actually see both sides of, but felt like I swayed toward one, whereas previously I swayed toward another. So we just sat there sharing all of the nuances of our ideas, and we didn't land in the same spot at all. But I came out respecting her opinion even more, and she came out respecting mine. It was amazing. I almost wanted to record it and just like broadcast it for people. Like, look how healthy we were able to do this and how good we feel afterwards, and the connection that it created. Unless you're in like a court of law, the goal should never be to conform everyone to your opinions. And sometimes the best part of the debate is actually figuring out where there are holes in our own arguments so that we can decide, wait, do I still believe this given that there's this whole area I haven't even thought of? Does this change anything? Is there new information that I can come up with that fills this hole? It's just a good practice for your mind, for your relationships, your connections, your opinions. So let me know how it goes and let me know what the topic is. (laughs) I'd love to see if this is actually successful for you or if at the very least it was a practice to help you work on your own triggers and to come at something with more acceptance and love. So reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If this episode was helpful, take a screenshot and share it on social media and tag Mind Love Melissa and Mind Love Podcast. You also might want to join Mind Love Premium, where you get to skip all the ads, get early release episodes, get a whole bunch of bonus meditations, and over 50 exclusive episodes that are only for premium members, and soon to be 100. If you'd like to support one of my amazing sponsors, who I highly recommend all of them, they're all brands and companies that I know, love, and use, you can find them all at mindlove.com slash sponsors, plus their accompanying discount codes. Or you can also leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you do, I just might read your review on the show. And that's all for today. Thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next time.